Hi, listeners. Claudia Reuter here, host of the podcast, The 43%, just back for its second season. The 43% is a show featuring the more nuanced stories of women navigating their professional and personal lives, exploring the balance between work life and home life for mothers everywhere, something often difficult to navigate, demanding, and even controversial. Around 43% of women leave the workforce at some point after having children, and I wanted to move past a lean-in or lean-out debate and allow women and men to hear a variety of interesting experiences from amazing women across multiple industries. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Ryan Hoover, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers of the Shaping the Future of Tech. Today, I'm joined by my friend, writer, and a student of human psychology, Nir Eyal. I've learned a ton from his writing. I used to follow his blog, still do, you know, years ago, well before Product Hunt started itself. He has this incredible ability to synthesize complex ideas and these studies into really actionable steps that people can use in their products when they're designing for engagement or habit formation. I helped him with his first book, Hooked, back in 2012. The book is all about how to build for engagement and includes a lot of really good frameworks and ideas that he's learned and really applied and you see applied across a number of different products, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Tinder. And if you look at Product Hunt, you'll see some of those ideas applied there as well. This week, he published his second book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Timing in this book is perfect. seems like more and more people are looking to have a healthier relationship with their smartphones and wearables and, and tech in general, really. On the podcast, we talk about the book, but we also talk about tips and his framework for building engaging products, his perspective on how the government should or should not get involved in regulating tech, and somehow, I don't know how, we got to talk about a sex life. Hey, Nir, how's it going? Great, Ryan. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good chatting. You're all the way in New York today. I how's am. it going over there? It's 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 hot, but uh, no complaints. I'm enjoying the the weather. Nice. So so you and I have known each other for I don't know seven years. I think shortly before Product Hunt, we met. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. It would have been 2012, I guess. No, no. I think it was 2012. Early, yeah, earlier than that. No, it must have been like 2009, actually. No, it was actually 2010 is when we moved to San Francisco. So I know it was okay. it was shortly before Product Hunt, which is 2013. Okay. And I the the way that I met you, I don't know if you remember this exactly, but the way that I met you was, and I may even be misremembering this, but I wrote a blog post about a list of people I wanted to meet. I remember who I. Oh, you know what? Okay, you do remember. Twelve because because the blog post title was Twelve People I Want to Meet in in 2012. That's right. That's right. Which, uh, fast forward, I've actually met most of those people on that list, uh, which is pretty cool. But but you were on that list, and these were people who I just admire that had been following on Twitter, reading their blog posts. And uh, at the time, I was also blogging a lot. And I remember writing that blog post, and and then somehow we connected. I don't know if I reached out or if you reached out, but you saw that, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'd love yeah, to meet exactly. you. Somebody and I was like, what, me. really? <laughs> hey, this kid wants to meet you, and, and you put a lot of people on the list that I really admired. And I was like, huh. I don't think I belong on this list, but you know, let me reach out to you and say, Hey, let's grab a burger sometime. I'm right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of, I mean, at, at the time I was just, you know, a product manager at some startup and, and uh, you know, it was just a very curious person about technology and, 
and you're like, yeah, I'd love to meet up. So uh, yeah, I remember driving down to Palo Alto. We we got burgers. I think we both removed the bun, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we we definitely have similar quirks. Yes, yes. And I remember that conversation. It was really fun. We we connected, and then it was at the very end of that conversation. You're like, "Hey, so I'm thinking about writing a book and and kind of turning my blog post into like a full complete book. Do you want to? Do you want to well, help?" The with reason that? I said that, I remember the prompt was that you were just like, "Hey, I just really like your writing, and your stuff is really cool. What like can I help you with anything? Is there anything I can do on the side?" And I was like, "Actually, here's what I'm thinking about doing." <laughs> Yeah. And I, I remember that. I was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work, but I, it sounds also really fun and like a great, great way to learn and everything. And uh, fast forward, you know, helped out a little bit with the book and, and Hooked, Hooked's done really well. Actually, can you talk about Hooked for those that maybe aren't familiar with it? Sure. So Hooked, uh, the subtitle is How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And that was a book that uh, we worked on together. We, we put a lot of time and effort into it. And uh, I, I still to this day, very much appreciated all the help uh, and, and work you put into it. We we self-published it at first thinking, okay, maybe, you know, a few thousand of my blog subscribers might want to read it. And uh, then shortly after I self-published it, a few months later, I got a call from, um, you know, real publishers, uh, uh, you know, the, the big publishers saying, hey, we, we want to publish this. And so we took it off the market for a while and then put it back on the market, professionally published. And uh, since then, it's uh, sold 250,000 copies. Can you believe that? And it's in wow. 11 languages. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah. yeah it's and, and actually, the, the first version, I think, technically, that, that was sort of shared, I guess, publicly or semi-publicly was a Google Doc, I remember. Right. And yeah, can you talk about, t- tell people about that? Because that, that was a really, I think, brilliant way to one, get feedback before it was published, but also get like buy-in and get people excited about the book. Yeah. So, so we use some of the techniques in the book. Uh, one of the techniques is this investment phase of the hook, where uh, if you put effort into something, you, you tend to like it more. Uh, and so this is called the Ikea effect is, is what Dan Ariely calls it. And so we wanted to use that to, for hooked for two reasons. One, we wanted to build kind of a, an army of loyalists who really wanted the book to succeed. That was one reason, but the primary motivation was that the book needed editing <laughs> and it needed work. And, uh, so, you know, we invited basically anybody who wanted to help edit the book and we did this crowd editing and it was a, a huge pain. Uh, we did, you know, I think we had five Google Docs uh, of complete versions of the book, and I had to like, uh, you know, uh, edit the book across all these five Google Docs. It was so much work, but the book was so much better for it. The input was was tremendous, and then we had uh, the deal was if you were part of this what I call the contributor program, then your name would be in the back of the book, and that's exactly what happened. So there's this list of a few pages of of people who were generous enough to donate their time and, and insights to make the book better, and they're in the book. And I did the exact same thing with my next book, Indistractable. And, and does, did Google fix their I think hundred person limit since then? I think that was the reason why we had four different. Yeah, dogs. they did fix the hundred person limit. I think now it's a little bit more, but not much more. But uh, let me tell you, I did it with Indistractable, and it was just as much of a pain. It was not easy. But again, the feedback was so good. People made the book so much better. Uh, it, it, it's I changed so much having uh, seen people's feedback. Yeah. So fa- kind of uh, reflecting on on the past, I don't know, it's been, what, I guess, six years or so since the, the book was published, roughly. What's What's been the biggest surprise from publishing the book? 
Yeah. So when we uh, first published the book, you know, I was out there kind of convincing people, no, 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 behavioral design is real, that these, these kids in Silicon Valley didn't just get lucky. I mean, back then, people just thought, oh, you know, Zuckerberg and the Twitter guys and the Google guys, they just got lucky, right? They, they just stumbled onto something. And to convince them, no, 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 you, you don't understand. These folks know what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Uh, that was something we had to kind of convince people was true. Well, I think now that's that's a foregone conclusion. Uh, in fact, I think now the pendulum has swung too much the other direction. Now people say that technology hijacks our brain and it's controlling us. And I think that's the other extreme. I don't think that's exactly right either. Uh, but where we used to be of, of uh, convincing people that actually, you know what? Consumer psychology can make for better product design and can save you a lot of blood, sweat, and tears designing your product, especially if it's the kind of product that needs habituation, right? Lots of products out there. They need to find ways to bring people back. Uh, if they don't use the product out of habit, then the product might as well not even exist. I mean, think about how many apps you have on the second, third, fourth page of your of your iPhone uh, versus you know the ones you actually do interact with on your home screen. Think about uh, on the uh, Amazon Alexa. If you don't remember what to ask Alexa to do, then your skill that you, that you made and spend all this time building that the, the product manager d- developed for you, like that might as well not even exist. So habits become, I think, increasingly important in the, the five years or so now since the book has been out. It's, it's even more important to understand how to create habits with your customers. Yeah. And, and one thing I do, do like the book goes into, so you read blog posts and you read books and they, they prescribe some sort of formula or framework or, or way of thinking. And if you take that alone and apply it to just everything, it's it's usually not the right way of going about things. So you, you made a good point earlier that habit formation and, and the way you drive engagement is very different from Instagram than it is from like an insurance company where an insurance company, I just went through this process, uh, you know, got a home, had to find insurance. I hope to God I don't have to do that for several years from now. And it doesn't require me to have, you know, ongoing uh, engagement and, and, uh, you know, create habits. Uh, whereas Instagram, it needs to do that on a daily or weekly basis for me to be a really valuable customer for their business model. How do you help people understand like how to think about frameworks or, or things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my contention for hooked has always been that it's not that every business needs to be habit forming. It's that every business that needs to be habit forming needs a hook. And so it's really comes down to your business model and your competitive advantage. You know, you, you need to have some kind of sustainable competitive advantage or else if you don't, and there, there's many forms of a competitive advantage. It can be economies of scale. It can be brand. It can be IP and it can be habit. But if you don't have any competitive advantage, if, if you don't have what Warren Buffett calls some kind of moat around your business, well, then you're constantly competing on price and features and price and features. Uh, and we know what happens to those type of businesses. The margins go basically to zero. So again, it's not that every business needs to be habit forming, but if your business model requires unprompted user engagement uh, in order to survive, and this is the, the archetype for you know many of the companies over the past decade that have become the most valuable companies in the world, right? If if you don't use Google on your own, unprompted, right? They, that Google can't afford to send you an ad to remind you to use Google. You have to do that on your own. And, and more so, think about it, when we Google something, this is the real power. I mean, this is the evidence that, that, uh, of the power of habits. That, you know, when you use Google as opposed to using the number two search engine in the world, Bing, right? You're not even asking yourself, hmm, I wonder who has the best search engine. 
We don't ask ourselves that. And that's the power. Talk about the power of this competitive advantage of this moat around your business. When you can create what I call the monopoly of the mind, that every time I'm uncertain about something, that's the internal trigger for using Google uncertainty. Boom, I'm Googling it with little or no conscious thought. I'm not even asking, is there a, a better product out there? I mean, it's a, it's a verb. It's a verb that, that you use to imply the action you want to take. I mean, even if you were searching on Bing, someone might even say, I'm going to go Google it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and and that's, and that's a huge, huge competitive advantage. I mean, there's, you know, you, you might think, well, but, oh, Google's better, right? That's, that's why I use Google. It's just better. Well, it turns out third party studies have found that when you put the search results of Google versus Bing side by side, but you strip out the branding and people don't know where the search results came from, they can't tell the difference between the two. It's literally a 50, 50 preference split, but Google owns what 80, 90% of the market share uh, because of this habit, nothing but a habit. Now you, you talked to, you already kind of touched on smart speakers. That's actually a category that I'm actively looking at from an investment perspective, but also just intellectually. I think it's super interesting to think about. We have now these smart speakers and we have AirPods and, and all these different ways of interacting with technology with our voice. But the challenge is we, we don't have a lot of the same patterns or even, even user habits in some cases uh, that we've adopted with smart with smartphones and screens, uh, we don't have those visual kind of cues and triggers like we do um, on those devices that we're used to using. How do you how do you think about that with with new platforms? Is like new platforms emerge? How do you think about applying the hooked model or driving engagement and, and um, habitual use on platforms like audio or voice? Yeah, so this isn't something that we put in the book, but it's definitely something that I've worked on since, which is, you know, how do you capture the competition's customer habit? Uh, you know, you, we talk about the internal triggers and how important it is to have an internal trigger, which is a, a negative emotion, some kind of negative valence state like loneliness, boredom, uncertainty, fatigue, whatever it might be. And what a habitual product does is attach the product's use to that internal trigger. But what if somebody else already owns that internal trigger? And so it's not that you can't go after them. I mean, this is where we talked about the monopoly of the mind earlier. Uh, it's not that it's impossible, but it is quite difficult. And there are only so many opportunities to displace the existing habit of your competition's customers. And one of those is when there's an interface change. Uh, so there are basically four ways to capture the competition's customer habit. One of them is to increase the velocity with which the customer goes through the four steps of the hook, the trigger, action, reward, investment. If you can find a way to get people to go through the hook faster, that's one way. Um, so this is how Netflix beat the socks off Blockbuster, right? Even back in the day when Netflix used to send you the DVD, uh, think about how much easier it was to get to the reward, to get what you wanted out of the product. You know, the DVD is right there on your kitchen counter. This is way before they were streaming, right? Those red envelopes, remember, they used to send. That was so much easier. The velocity with which you could pass through the experience was way, way faster. Okay, so that's one way. The next way is frequency of use. So if you can be used more frequently throughout the user's day, not, not to spin faster through the hook, but more often throughout the day, that's another opportunity. So that's where an interface change really makes a difference. That's where an incumbent has an opportunity. So think about how, you know, Facebook was a mobile, I'm sorry, was a web first product, right? When, when Zuckerberg first developed Facebook, it was always a, a, a website first product as opposed to Instagram, which was a mobile first experience. Well, you know, when Zuckerberg saw that this was a mobile first experience, he realized that this was a huge competitive threat because people would use Instagram much more often throughout their day because it was a mobile first experience and they were with their phones 
much more than they were in front of a web browser. So that was where Instagram could capture that customer habit because this new interface could be used more often. That's exactly what we're seeing today with the the auditory interface. As computing becomes more ubiquitous, as it becomes more pervasive and, and persuasive, every time that there's an interface change, that's where the habit deck gets reshuffled. And so that's what we're seeing today, that, that, that habits are being moved over to these new experiences wherever people can interact with them more often. Uh, and then the other two ways, just to kind of wrap up the four in case folks are curious, the third way is to make the reward more rewarding. Like if in the variable reward phase of the hook, if the reward is way, way better, and the studies show it has to be not just a little bit better, it has to be nine times better. And the last way is to make it easier to enter the hook in the first place. Uh, so if you think about how Microsoft Office beat, uh, sorry, Microsoft Office lost to Google Docs, they lost because Google Docs could be used for free without any software. It was hosted in the cloud. So today, Google Docs is the most widely used enterprise software in the world. It's no longer Microsoft Office because it was easier to enter that hook in the first place. Uh, so those are the four ways. So it's it's velocity, frequency, make the reward more rewarding, and make it easier to get into the hook. Yeah. And that's that's where going back to platform shifts, we have audio voice. We also have wearables, of course, with, with the Apple Watch being a notable example today. But inevitably, we're going to be seeing things and having some sort of AR interface, I think. And, and we, we'll all be cyborgs at some point. I, I think we, <laughs> Elon Musk and others will already argue that we are cyborgs. It's just um, we don't see it that way. Like the, the iPhone is... Oh, I, I would totally agree. It's it, yeah, I don't see the difference. What's the difference between if it's you know crosses the the, the skin computer interface versus just putting it in your hand? Uh, I think we very much are cyborgs already. Yeah, and people of course get get nervous and scared about that. I'm 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 more of an optimist. You you might even say na- naive optimist sometimes. I see the the reduction of friction is generally a good thing for for most things in life, and the the process. Um, and, and of course, this is where indistractable kind of comes into play. But uh, you know, being able to access information faster rather than pulling up my my iPhone and searching Google, if I could just uh, retrieve that information instantly with my brain. Why is that not better? And if you think about the impacts that can make around productivity, which influences GDP and, and people's efficiency, is it's like a huge impact, a huge positive impact. But the big thing is is how that could be used for for maybe negative reasons or, or um, negative externalities that could come from something like that. Sure. So so I think my my two cents there are that that the reduction of friction is an amplifier. That uh, reduction of friction makes more of everything, good and bad. Uh, so when it's easier to communicate with people, you get more communication. You get, you know, what we have today, uh, m- more support for people who are struggling, for people who are in rural areas. I mean, if you think about what it's like to come out of the closet today versus what it was like, you know, in the 1980s, it's, it's a completely different experience. Uh, my, my brother came out in the 1980s and I remember it was horrible for him. It was, it was horrible on the whole family because he, he couldn't connect with people. It was, it was very difficult. Well, today you've got support groups online, you've got Facebook groups, lots of people can support you. So it's amplified the good stuff. It's also amplified a lot of the bad stuff, right? So you see a lot more of, uh, of the potential hate if, uh, or, or, or bullying. You know, it amplifies a lot of that stuff when you reduce friction, both good and bad. I think what is worrisome to me is not the solutions. I, I am very 
optimistic that we will find solutions. We already see ourselves coming up with solutions, right? Constantly. I mean, the, the platforms have incentives to fix this stuff, right? That if, if they don't, people will stop using them as we see already. You know, there, I just saw a report that in the UK, uh, Facebook ex- is experiencing like a 30% reduction in use of their platform, which is horrible for them, right? They've got to fix things or people will, will either stop using it or they'll switch to some kind of competing product. So they have an incentive to fix these things. I think what worries me is that we've seen an attitude change uh, when it comes to the way we look at technology. I think skepticism is a very healthy trait. I would, I would say that skepticism is a very Silicon Valley trait. Uh, there's a lot of skeptics in Silicon Valley, which is great. I think it's wonderful because skepticism helps you challenge the status quo and, and get to first principles to find truth. What I think we've now turned the corner, and unfortunately a lot of people have become, is not just skeptics, but cynics. And I think the defining trait between skepticism and cynicism is that cynicism is a fixed trait, that you begin to look for the storyline. This is called confirmation bias, that once we start believing tech is evil, tech is doing this, tech is doing that, you start looking for that storyline. And I think that is really dangerous because that's when it begins to permeate other aspects of society. It begins to permeate what kind of choices a college major might make. Uh, do they go into tech? Do they go into this field? Do they, do they join a Silicon Valley startup? Or do they think, nah, those, you know, th- those, those people are exploitive and, and I don't want to be a part of it. That comes at a cost because, I, I mean, I, I really believe in my heart of hearts that the way we improve our standard of living, the way we improve the world is by technological innovation is making things better by using our brains to build tools to help us do more with less. That's what we need to be doing more of, not less of. And I, I worry that that cynicism is going to backfire. I share, share those thoughts and that perspective. And, and it feels like it's, it's heated up a lot. And some of it is justified. Some of this criticism is certainly justified due to um, either you know, on one side, unethical, illegal behavior in some cases, uh, and to two, sometimes it's just unexpected outcome of, of what you created. I mean, the reality is Facebook has certainly made mistakes. On one side, they also have roughly 2 billion people on their platform. It's impossible to predict exactly what would happen on that. Um, now, I'm not excusing any, any of the wrongdoings that they've done intentionally, but Inevitably, when you use technology and create something at that level of scale that we've never seen before on the earth, something bad will happen. And I think it's I think it's now even more important, though, for technologists and people building products to have high ethical standards and and be thoughtful in how they're building these things. So on one side, there's a lot of negativity and criticism and cynicism. On the other side, I think at least it's allowing us to be more open-minded and aware of the influence that the negative influence that product builders can have on society and people. How do you think about education or, or what do you think is needed? Should, should we require, not require, but should we build more tools or programs or uh, evangelism around ethics in, in technology? Yeah, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this topic. And I remember even with with Hooked, you know, there's a section in there about the morality of manipulation. So this is not uh, a new a new topic. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a very, very long time. But I did want to come up with kind of a, a new ethical standard. Uh, the idea being that I think it's important that that product designers have a way to tap the brakes and ask, hey, is, is this is what we're doing? okay, is this, does this cross an ethical line? And 
I went searching for what that ethical standard should be. And so I came up with, you know, the first thing I came across was Google's motto of don't be evil. Uh, they don't use that motto anymore, by the way, but that used to be the official motto. And I don't really like that motto. And I don't like that motto because it's too squishy, right? What does it mean? Don't be evil. E- evil is a very subjective term. And if you squint a certain way, you can make things that would otherwise be evil all of a sudden not look so evil because you've got the bottom line, you've got incentives, you've got all kinds of things. So I didn't like that standard. Um, so then I, I went to see some ethicists. Uh, I went to Santa Clara University where they have a center on, on tech ethics and they advocated for the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's also not a good standard. The reason I don't like that standard is because who's to say the product designer should have a say over what the product user should want done to them. It's a very egocentric point of view. Uh, It shouldn't be do unto others as you want them to do unto you. From a product development standpoint, it should be do unto others as they want done to themselves. So I didn't like that standard either. So then I went to see the lawyers and the lawyers told me, well, just disclose. As long as we tell people whatever they, you know, what we're doing to them, then we're in the clear, right? That's how you cover your ass. But that standard sucks too, because what we get when we use that standard are these terms of service statements that go on for pages and pages and pages that nobody reads and everybody knows that nobody reads. So disclosure can't be the answer. Maybe that's from a legal standpoint, but it's certainly not an ethical standard that I would feel good about and I don't feel good about. So I don't like that standard either. So the standard I came up with is called the regret test. And the regret test is a very simple fail safe uh, 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 that we can use to ask our teams, if we're in the middle of a product design meeting, we can raise our hands and say, hey, you know what, we should run a regret test on this. And what what is a regret test? A regret test asks, would the user do what we have designed for them to do, knowing everything we know? Right? So if the user knew everything that we know, would they still take the action they're about to take? Well, how could we know that? How do we get inside people's brains? How, you know, how could we possibly expect it to, to abide by that standard? It's actually quite easy. We do the same thing we always do in product design. We do user testing, and we've been doing this for decades. We bring a representative sample into a room. Uh, this happens every single day all over Silicon Valley. And instead of just walking them through the user experience, we disclose to them what just happened. And out of that representative sample, we have some kind of bar that we set, that we say to ourselves that, the, if the user knew everything we as the designer knows, would they do what we've designed them to do and pass a certain bar? Whatever that bar might be, I think it should be nine out of 10, right? We used to, we used to have, you know, four, nine uptime, remember like server uptime? Well, there should be some kind of ethical standard of like nine out of 10 people do not regret using our product or whatever it might be. And if it doesn't pass that bar, then we don't release that feature. So not only is that a good ethical standard, it's also... Good business practice, because look, people aren't stupid, right? The narrative these days promoted by people like Tristan Harris, which I think is, is wrong and hurtful and harmful, is that technology is hijacking people's brains, that there's nothing they can do about it, that's mind control. Hijacking is what happened to us on 9-11. It's disrespectful and disingenuous to say that our technology is doing that to us. It is not true. People are not idiots. Other than situations where, you know, children, for example, children can't be expected to be of sound body and mind because they're children, right? There's lots of things that children are not allowed to do in society. I wouldn't let my my daughter, you know, walk into a bar and order a gin and tonic. I wouldn't let her walk into a casino and play blackjack. There are certain things kids can't do. Uh, same thing goes for people who are pathologically addicted. There's a proportion of the population that 
is pathologically addicted. They deserve special protections. But everyone else, we're not stupid, right? If a product hurts us, if it harms us, if we regret using the product, guess what we do? We either stop using the product, we moderate our use, or we use the competition's product that's less harmful. So if we don't start running these regret tests, we are going to be blindsided, right? I want to know about consumers regretting the use of my product well before they tell their friends on social media how much I suck or, or you know, uh, stop using it because they think it tricked them into doing something they didn't want to do. So that's what I'm a- advocating for. I want this regret test to be you know, the, 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 stat, the new status quo for how we test the ethical design of products. Now, it doesn't mean that sometimes you have unintended uh, consequences, right? Paul Varillo said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. It's inevitable that every new technology is going to have unintended consequences. And, we, and, and the goal then is to fix those unintended consequences with, of course, more technology to improve the aspects of the bad, the bad aspects of the last generation of technology. But I think using something like the regret test can weed out a lot of these unethical practices, a lot of the dark patterns that sometimes people convince themselves are okay to use. Yeah, I, I like that that framework and, and that question. It's a simple question to you to ask, uh, independent of even user studies itself, is just ask your teammates and, and the people involved in building the product and designing the product. You know, that that question, I think, that regret question is really good. By, by the way, just asking that question means 90% of the time you don't even have to run the regret test. Right, right. <laughs> right. When the boss says, hey, let's use this dark pattern. I mean, they won't call it a dark pattern, but let's use whatever it might be, right? The bait and switch technique or the roach motel technique. You can learn more about these dark patterns online. Just a- asking, hey, you know, boss, we should probably run a regret test on that. Would the user do what we've designed for them to do knowing everything we know? Nine times out of 10, the boss will say, okay, you know what? You're right. <laughs> let's not do that. Yeah. They know the answer. How how do you think about there? There are some politicians, of course, advocating for regulation around things that product designers and companies can do. Um, some of them specifically around like social media. Like you must present a pop up every thirty minutes to ask users, should you still be on this? You can't have auto playing videos and no more infinite scrolling and and all of these other kind of design patterns that we're all used to. What do you? I mean, I think I, I have a, an assumption around your perspective on some of those things, but. At what point should regulators get involved in, you know, either limiting or guiding some of these decisions for us? I'm all for it as long as we apply it fairly. So if we're going to have a pop-up on Twitter every 30 minutes, I also want to pop up on Fox News. Because time is time. Why is scrolling on Twitter somehow morally inferior to watching Fox News? You tell me. To me, they are equally divisive, they are equally potentially toxic, and they can equally be abused by people who go overboard and spend too much time uh, interacting with them. So why do we only apply the standard to new technology? I'll tell you why. Because it's an easy target. Every new technology is an easy target, especially one with the magnitude and the impact of social media. So if we apply these techniques fairly, which we won't, then I'm all for it. What I'm against is this, this idea that somehow, you know, spending your time playing a video game or connecting on social media is somehow evil, but watching a football game or, you know, more dribble on the talk show new, you know, talk um, news shows on, on, on television is somehow morally superior. I don't get it. The only reason we think that one is okay and one is not okay is because one is new and one is old. And I think that's the mistake we make. And I think that's the point I make in Indistractable is that 
distraction is nothing new and it comes in many, many forms. Uh, distraction is anything that pulls you away from what you want to do with your time. And so I don't think anybody should tell me what I should do with my time. As long as it's in accordance with my values, as long as I'm doing something that helps me be the person I want to be that I'm using on my schedule, as opposed to the app maker schedule, it's great. There's nothing wrong with it. If you want to play video games, play video games. If you want to read the news, read the news. If you want to watch uh, you know, a football game, great. It becomes a problem when you are, are doing it in excess. That's the opportunity cost of any of these distractions. Technology is not melting our brain. It's not hijacking our brain. That's a bunch of rubbish. The opportunity cost is the cost of any overuse of distract uh, of, of media, right? When we consume too much of it, it comes at the cost of what else we could do with our time. And so that, that's one thing that really bothers me about that kind of legislation, that it's, I think it's targeted at the, at the wrong place without being fairly distributed around, around all potential distractions. And two, we need to look at it on a case-by-case basis. It's not the technique that's being applied. It's not the infinite scroll. It's not the streaks. Those aren't the patterns that are bad. It's how they are used and to what ends. So for example, you know, they want to ban streaks. Snapchat uses streaks. And apparently, you know, the, the proponents of this kind of legislation say that streaks, you know, are hijacking our brain, which is complete rubbish, but okay. Well, uh, uh, Snapchat uses these streaks, but so does Duolingo. And Duolingo uses it to help people learn a language. So should Duolingo no longer use them? So th- that's where this is misinformed, right? There's no data. First of all, there's absolutely no data <laughs> in any of this legislation. Like none of this legislation has any backing in terms of does it actually harm people? Like we, we the, there's no there's no studies that show that this, these techniques somehow are are hurting people. I mean the the evidence out there is is very new, very preliminary, and even the, the even the best studies show a tiny correlation with heavy amounts of use. We're talking, you know, three, four, five hours in the case of children with extracurricular screen time. That's when you start seeing a correlation with some negative effects. Very small effect. It's about the same as as uh, missing breakfast. Again, only with excessive use. It's not. There's been zero studies, zero studies that show any deleterious effects for children in particular with two hours or less of extracurricular screen time. There's actually, uh, I was listening to my friend James Bashar's podcast earlier today, and and one of his guests mentioned this quote, totally different topic, but ironically, it's very relevant to what you just said. It's a quote from H.L. Mencken, and it's his, his quote is, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And I feel like a lot of these proposed uh, regulation shifts and changes are, they seem really clear and, and, um, and, and simple, you know, let's stop auto playing videos that will help people, you know, stop going down the rabbit hole of YouTube or, or Netflix or whatnot. But the, the solution that they're proposing, while simple, is actually very wrong <laughs> and, and impossible to actually enforce for some of the reasons that you described. Right. And, and why, why don't we have a stop the autoplay videos on, on, uh, on Fox News? <laughs> right? Fox News autoplays all day long. <laughs> Why is there no stop the autoplay there? And, and that's, you know, all this stuff, what it does, if there's one theme to my book, Indistractable, it's really this theme of look for the root causes. Don't look at the proximal cause. And this is what we have done for ages, right? This discussion right, literally right now that's happening on, on Capitol Hill and legislation about, about tech verbatim, Ryan, like literally word for word is the exact same debate and testimony that was had over comic books, 
more than 50 years ago. It's causing kids to commit suicide and depression, and it's doing this, and it's doing that, and it's hijacking their brains, and it's leading to all of this divisiveness. Literally the exact same words. <laughs> and it's never that simple. It's never, ever that simple. There is much more to it than people understand. And so you say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Why don't we just ban this stuff and then we'll get it taken care of? Because when we focus on the wrong thing, it takes our minds off of the real problems. The real distraction is not the technology. The real distraction are people who are in this fear industrial complex to make us think that they had know the problem when the problem is much, much deeper. That's the real distraction. The real distraction, the reason kids are, are, are uh, you know, experiencing higher rates of suicide and, and depression is not the technology. It's what else is going on in their lives. And there's a whole section in Indistractable called How to Raise Indistractable Kids where I talk about this, uh, about what's really going on in kids' lives that drives them to overuse tech. Tech is the tool. It's not the root cause of the problem. Not that we shouldn't moderate our use. I am all for moderating use. If you don't want to use Facebook, if you you know if you want to help your kids uh, use less Facebook or whatever it might be, I'm all for that. I'm not a proponent of these tech companies. I'm uh, by, in any way, shape, or form. I you know I, I am not a tech apologist. There's lots of things these tech companies have done wrong that they should be held accountable for. M- what what I'm advocating for, I'm not on the side of pro tech or anti tech. What I am for is nuance. Is to understand that this argument isn't good versus evil. If you want good versus evil, r- you know, read a fairy tale. I'm on the side of nuance, that it's about how you use it, what you're doing when you use it, how much you use it, and who is using it, and most importantly, what are they displacing by using this stuff, right? So if I said, hey, Ryan, I'm going to get into the habit of running, okay, running, right? Is that a healthy habit or an unhealthy habit? And you would say, well, healthy habit, right? That's running, that's good for you. And then I say, you know what, Ryan, I'm getting, I want to get into the habit of running because I can't stand my family. My kids are driving me crazy. Uh, I hate my wife. My job is awful. And running is the only place where I can zone out and get a runner's high. Then you might say, well, that's not a very good habit. I don't think you should do that. And now it's a bad habit. But then if I tell you, you know what, actually, the only, you know, I used to drink and drink was where I found my escape. And now I run so that I won't drink as much. Well, then you say, now it's a good habit again. So clearly there's more to it than just the behavior. There's always the context around the person and the product and why they're using this, this, uh, this particular behavior. And I, so I know you, you've taken a lot of your knowledge and learnings on this to just sort of apply it to be more focused and, and I guess not distracted. I know one thing, I assume you still do this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you automatically turn off your router. So no internet after I think it's 10 PM. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So uh, this was a technique that I found. So we, we've known each other a long time. I can I can talk to you about my sex life here, but <laughs> that's where this came from. So Julie and I've been married almost twenty years. I'm just happy I have a sex life after twenty years of marriage. And uh, I'll be honest with you, a few years ago we had no intimate time together because we were constantly, you know, fondling our devices and caressing our iPad as opposed <laughs> to being together, and that was ridiculous. And so we decided to use this indistractable framework, this four-part model that I talk about in in, uh, in indistractable, to get our sex life back. And one of the things that we do, uh, this is the fourth step, uh, is called preventing distraction with pacts. And so this uses what's called an effort pact. An effort pact is when you put a bit of friction in between what you don't want to do. And so we bought this internet time. Oh, we bought this outlet timer. We plugged it into the wall and whatever you, uh, whatever time you set on this internet, uh, on this um, outlet timer will turn off whatever is plugged into that outlet. So we plugged in our router. And so every night at 10 PM, our internet shuts off. 
Uh, today, actually, we have a router called the Eero router that actually comes with this built in. You can actually set it so that some, because now we have smart devices all over our house, so we don't want those to turn off. So the the Eero, you can actually tell it, okay, turn off uh, internet access to this laptop, to my kid's iPad, to this, you know, to my cell phone, uh, but, but keep it on for other things, uh, which is fantastic because, again, if I wanted to get to the internet, I could, I could find a way. But what I've done is to add a bit of friction to prevent me from doing something I don't want to do. So I have a moment of mindfulness as opposed to mindlessly, you know, using this stuff. So, you know, if there's one message I want people to take away from Indistractable, from the book, is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought, okay? I don't care what algorithms the big tech companies throw at us, what the next distraction might be. I mean, if you think of the world as distracting now, just wait a few years. It's only going to become more distracting. So the way we fight against this is that we use this gift of a trait that our species has and that is is more developed than any other species on the face of the earth, which is the ability to see the future with high fidelity. We can predict what's going to happen better than any other animal on the face of the earth. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. If the fork with chocolate cake is on the way to your mouth, it's too late. You've already lost the war. If, if you know, you're, you're checking Facebook at midnight because you sleep with your phone next to your bed, too late, right? They're going to get you. <laughs> what we have to do is plan ahead, is to take steps in advance. And this is exactly what Indistractable is all about. It's these four things that you can do to make sure that you do whatever it is you want to do in life, whether it's to spend more time with your kids, whether it's to be more productive at work, whether it's to exercise, eat right, whatever it is that is important to you that is consistent with your values, I'm going to show you how to do those things and bring them and make them part of your life. Nice. That's, it's, a, it's a very nice compliment to you to Hooked. And, and Hooked was really about how do you build engaging habit-forming products that they ultimately, which lead to successful businesses and, and products that people love and use. And, and this is sort of in some ways the reverse of like how to, how to deconstruct that. And as a consumer, how to control your, your attention in many ways. When is the book coming out? What's, uh, and where can they get it? Yeah. So the book comes out September 10th, uh, 2019, and uh, they can find it wherever books are sold on Amazon or wherever you'd like. And if they, if uh, you go to indistractable.com and that's I N distract A-B-L-E, so indistractable, A-B-L-E at the end. Uh, There's all kinds of tools there. Unfortunately, I couldn't put a lot of this stuff in the book. I just ran out of space. So there's a distraction tracker. There's a schedule maker. There's an 80-page workbook that I just couldn't fit into the book. It would have been way too long. Uh, There's a video course. all this other stuff that you can get at indistractable.com. You can also download the workbook, by the way, for free. Even if you don't buy the book, you can get that at indistractable.com as well. So lots of tools over there. So if you do get the book, make sure you, you get all this other bonus content, which will make it much more effective in implementing these techniques in your life. Nice. I'm super happy to see this come out because I remember you telling me the premise of this book, I think three or four years ago, if I'm not mistaken, you're like, hey, I'm thinking about writing a book on this topic. We, we walked on, on the Embarcadero, I think, uh, maybe three or four years ago when you were exploring, maybe you even started writing it back then. I don't remember. Yeah, it's been five years. It's taken me a really long time. And part of the reason it took me so long is that I, I used all the other techniques first. Like I wanted to, I, I, w- I was really going back and forth on whether I should write the book because I, I kept saying to myself, look, if somebody else has written this, uh, written the book that uh, solves this problem for me, well then that should be it. Why do I need to write a book that's already been written? So I would try these techniques, right? So the, the one that everybody tells you about today is this 30 day digital detox idea. And I tried that. Like I went on Alibaba and I bought myself a $12 flip phone with no internet connection, just made phone calls, send text messages. It's all it did. 
uh, I got myself a word processor from the 1990s so that I wouldn't have any internet connection. And I, I used that to write my, my essays, you know, to, to write. And I still got distracted. <laughs> right? I'd, I'd clean up my desk. I'd take out the trash. I'd look at the bookcase behind me and I'd look at a book. And I would still get distracted even without the technology. And that's what I, when I realized that this, this, this idea of going to digital detox and stop using tech for 30 days and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work, one, because we need these tools. I mean, it's, it's a luxury to say, oh, just stop using the technology. Come on, give me a break. We need this for our livelihood. But also, you know, I used to be clinically obese. Uh, well before you knew me. And, uh, and and when I was clinically obese, I would go on these fad diets, you know, 30 days, no fast food. And then of course, what happened on day 31, right? I'd, <laughs> I'd eat everything because I hadn't dealt with the real reason why I was overeating. I hadn't dealt with what's called the internal triggers. Uh, and so that's, that is the answer. That distraction starts from within. And so these tools, these, these potential distractions outside of us can lead us astray, but only if we let them. And if we learn how to prevent distraction, then we can become indistractable. Nice. Thanks for coming on, Nir. It's awesome, awesome to see the, the progress too. And, and also Hooked, I still see tweets every now and then of people sharing photos of the book Hooked and it's still selling, it's selling well, it seems like. So awesome work. Funny you should mention just today, someone uh, texted me, or sorry, I was on LinkedIn and they, and they sent me a quick note of, yeah, I saw your book. Wait, is that Ryan Hoover from Product Hunt? Now I'll definitely buy it. <laughs> so you, you had a, a huge impact on the book for nice. sure. Well, well, I learned a lot from you. I mean, a lot of the design of Product Hunt, you know, took some of your learnings and your blog posts and everything. And uh, and so it definitely, there's piece, pieces of the hooked model and, and things like that inside of ProductHunt.com itself. Awesome. That's, that's the best compliment you can give me. Nice. All right. Take care, Nir. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Hey, everyone. Abadesi from Product Hunt here. I'm the head of Maker Outreach. So if we haven't met before, hello. You might recognize me from the podcast, Product Hunt Radio. And today we're actually doing an extra special episode of Product Hunt Radio. Um, so some of you joined for Ryan's live um, session a few weeks ago. Uh, and now I'm back. So I thought it'd be really cool to get all of you in the community chiming in and talking about what new app, product, or website you are obsessed with. Um, so I invite you to join the broadcast whenever you've got something to share, because we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for joining. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I got to say this is a pretty awesome concept. Oh, cool. So where in the world are you right now? Uh, Indiana. Nice. Cool. So tell us, what new thing have you discovered that you're obsessed with? Uh, I learned about an app from you guys. because I, I go on the website every day. I have the app. Nice. The product app. It's a daily staple of mine. Um, has been for about four years now. And the app that Ooh. I found out about from you guys was called Quad Pay. And um, basically what it does is it, I guess you could say, quad quadruplicates like a payment of an item that you want into fours and you pay it off every two weeks so like there's something that's like a hundred bucks you mm -hmm. could break it down and pay 25 every two weeks and i just thought it was a really good app because um you know it makes things a little bit more affordable and you could do it at, at extremely low rates like you could even do something that's like 
uh, what, four bucks and pay a dollar every two weeks if you want, you know, but it just came through in the clutch and I learned about it from you guys. So I just wanted to give you all your props for that. Quad pay. Yeah, it's on um, both Android and uh, iOS. So you guys should check it out. Quad pay. Yeah, Quad download pay. that app, guys. Um, that's really awesome. Okay, cool. Great. Okay, Joe Vian. Hello. Welcome to Product Hunt Radio. Thanks, what's up? We're good. We are very good. How are you? Great. Awesome. Yeah, so Consider is a email client that I just found recently. Um, so the use case is uh, I was looking for a new email because, because I'm starting to switch more and more. Like I have three active emails right now. And Gmail is super slow. So I just found this uh, email consider, which I think the founder was an ex-growth uh, person in the intercom. Okay. So in our ways, basically, it's more like um, the cynical way to say it's like cheaper superhuman in a way. But okay. yeah, but it's more like because it's like around nice, like $10 um per month the, the subscription is like ten dollars per month and it's pretty cool like you don't really have to wait like superhuman and it actually makes you more focused when you're dealing with emails and it basically turns your inbox into a to-do list oh and it's, nice yeah and it's very simple like you just okay like for example for an email it can be just like it's is it a priority or you mm. deal with this later, or just mute this uh, particular sender, like automate email forever. That's Something pretty like cool. That. Yeah. And it's pretty I fast. Like, like, if you have more than uh, two emails inbox that you're actively using, you can just switch it pretty quickly. That sounds awesome. I like the idea of um, turning the emails into actions in, in a to-do mm-hmm. list. I've seen various email clients try to do that. I remember like in the old days outlook could let you create tasks gmail also supports yeah. that as well more and more people are integrating features from products like boomerang where you can like snooze right. an email or resurface emails and i definitely think we should move more towards that direction where instead of opening your inbox and thinking oh my gosh i've got to sift through everything and then find out what i need to action and what is just irrelevant having yeah. an inbox that could do some of that work for you uh, mm-hmm. is definitely appealing. Right, here we go. We've got Hark Theory on the line. Can't wait to hear about these Siri shortcuts. Hello. I'd love to hear more about the Siri shortcuts you're obsessed with. That It does, like, some automation stuff, but you have to, like, you can basically, like, connect stuff, like, have used IFTTT. Oh, nice. So, so you Amherst- can connect like certain apps to do certain things but when they now they have like an automation feature where it will automatically trigger like say for instance you like arrive at home like it'll automatically turn your lights on or oh cool you can even like set it to like if you go to a certain app it'll automatically like connect your airpods or you can have it bookmark the website that you're on like automatically um wow so i've just been trying to like you know connect different things with and see what all you can do but it's now on the the latest beta so you can test it and if you want to like find really good shortcuts there's a website called 
routinehub.com and I've been going there. Thank you so much for sharing these hacks. Yeah, thanks so you for basically joining. Turn, turn Siri into your like personal assistant. <laughs> All right. This is great. Amrit, you spend a lot of time um, sharing the best new things on Product Hunt across social channels. Uh, what's another cool launch you've seen recently? Um, yeah, thanks for queuing me in. Uh, there's, I don't know why I'm in the mood to share a lot of music apps today. I think last nice. week, last week there was an artist, like an indie electronic artist, someone uh, who teamed up with a developer and made this side project called Tyco Forecast. And oh, okay. what Tyco Forecast basically is, it's a very simple app that uh, uses the Black Sky uh, Weather App API to detect the weather around you and all the the wind conditions and everything and it uses ai to create it it uses ai to automatically generate a playlist based on that weather where you're at that's sick i love that yeah it's like why didn't i think of that or like you know why wasn't i i think it might have been there before but i i just think that this is really well executed and that i really liked my playlist um it was it was really hot here in the Netherlands the last two days. Like I was just looking up the maker's comments and everything. So it's like, if it's too hot, then the music will be a little more chilled out. Or if it's too cold, then the music might be a little more uplifting. So you kind of like, you know, I don't know, get energetic and then produce body, body. It's something like that. But it was really cool to That's see. That's awesome. And I think the music, yeah. I wonder what happens when your weather is like, I feel like here in London, where it rains a lot, it would just <laughs> always be like Britpop or grunge, <laughs> something <Right>. sad. <laughs> yeah, Rammstein. That's, when it's bad news outside, you're going to get <laughs> Rammstein. It would be interesting if it was like localized as well to like where you are in the world. Right. So it would like almost play like world music, you know what I mean? So yeah. like I'm in like the Caribbean and I'm going to listen to like reggae and stuff <laughs> okay folks we are coming to the end of our broadcast now huge 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 thanks on behalf of yep. all of the product and team for joining us this last hour it's been incredible people from all across the world taking time to share in the community what new thing they've discovered they're obsessed with super super happy to hear from you Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.